Good morning. Um, you will need your Bibles. We're actually going to start in Psalm 84 briefly, if you want to turn there. The reason is, it's interesting, just as I was preparing for this message a couple of weeks ago, a lot of the things that I'm going to say are things that I'm sure for a lot of you and for me are, are wrestles to actually keep on coming back to these, actually, these very simple truths. And um, that as we abide in Christ, we'll bear fruit. And um, yeah, I just had an experience, a, a, yeah, a few weeks ago, where I really, for the umpteenth time, I was get, putting the cart before the horse and going, I need to be bearing fruit. I need to be, you know, I need to do some good works. It's been a while, you know, whatever. Um, and I just, I came actually here to, to church and was just praying and asking God for a scripture. And Psalm 84 was the one that I prayed through. And it was just a profound sort of illustration of these things. I'll just read the first seven verses. It says, How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints, for the courts of the Lord. <clears throat> My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways of Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. And it was amazing because as I was praying that, I was just getting re... I don't know, what the young people might call centred today, being centred on the most fundamental reality, which is just the presence of God, the sweetness of the presence of God. And then as I hit verse 6, I saw the amazing effect that that has. As they go through the valley of Baca, literally the valley of weeping, or the valley of lament, as they go through the valley of weeping, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it. That's actually a beautiful and vivid description of what Christian fruitfulness is, what, it, what our calling is as Christians, that not only are we to not be impacted by the negative environment around us, but we're actually to have a positive impact upon it. And some of you might be in hard marriages, have hard children, or hostile friends, or a difficult workplace, and our calling as Christians is not just to not be conformed to that and weighed down by that, but actually to make that a place of springs, to make that a fruitful place. The people who do that, it says here, our verse 5, those whose strength is in God. This whole psalm, again, is about the presence of God and just the enjoyment of it. And the promise that it holds out is that those who linger long in the presence of God actually start to take that life-giving presence with them into the world that they inhabit. That's a beautiful thing. And so I, I was just loving that and just going, you know what, it's, it's not about the, the actions that are performed. It's about enjoying the presence of God. And I did. And I walked straight out of here down to do one last job, work for the day. And a guy stopped me and said, can I tell you a poem? I said, okay, great, tell me a poem. And he told me a poem and um, it, it included some mild profanity and irreverent uh, speech about Jesus. And then he said, and and what, uh, what about you? What do you do? Do you just clean windows? And I said, I actually used a, a Jared Shrank line. First time I met Jared, I said, what do, you do for, what do you do with yourself? And he said, I'm a full-time servant of the Lord. I said, yeah, but what do you do for work? I'm a financial planner. Um, but 
But that was awesome. And so I thought, as I said to this guy, I said, I'm a servant of the Lord. And he said, okay, oh, that's interesting. And we had a great little interaction. He was an atheist, but he said, I'm a miserable atheist and I'd rather be a Christian. Anyway, so that was a, a wonderful discussion, but a great illustration of this reality. Now, it doesn't always work quite that way in terms of you know, how, how rapidly it occurs, but the principle is true. You dwell in the presence of the Lord and the Lord actually causes you to be fruitful as you go out from there, not in your own strength, but just as he leads so that's what we're talking about today, abiding in Christ and bearing fruit. So I'm going to divide this in a pretty uh, creative way. First, we're going to talk about abiding in Christ and then bearing fruit. So we'll start with uh, abiding in Christ. Let's flip now to John 6, just briefly John 6. Sean's done a great job of just simplifying this whole concept to us. It can seem lofty and kind of mysterious. What does it mean to abide in Christ? It's a very old word. And he's just reminded us, really, that to abide in Christ means to just perpetually believe in him, to continually believe in Christ. That's what we see here in John chapter 6, verse 53. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I'll raise him up on the last day. My flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. And here's the pertinent uh, verse. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. So that abiding in Christ begins with a recognition at some point in your life. And if you haven't made this recognition yet, I hope that you do very soon, even today. A recognition that uh, apart from Christ, we actually have nothing to contribute to God. There's nothing in me, quite literally if you use the food analogy Jesus gives here, we're empty, we're spiritually hungry, and we have nothing to contribute to God to earn his favour to be united with him. And we recognise in Jesus true food and true drink, and so we take it and we eat it. We say, I contribute nothing, but you give me everything. But it doesn't end there. In fact, in the Gospel of John, when Jesus talks about people believing in him, the word is never in the past tense. It never says, those who have put their faith in me, those who have made a decision for me, those who have believed in me. It's always in the, the present tense, those who are believing in me. And in fact, that's the picture here, isn't it? Because like food and drink, it's something that we need every day. So that we don't say, well, I made the recognition back in the past that I need Jesus, but now I'm 10 years on, 20 years on, 30 years on as a Christian, and I, can, you know, I should be able to stand on my own two feet and wrestle with this sin myself and live my life um, you know, as a mature Christian. But actually, even at that point, we still say, I have nothing to contribute, no way to endear myself to God apart from the body and blood of Christ. Which is why every week when we take the Lord's Supper, which represents the body and blood of Christ, both the newest Christian, who's been a Christian for six hours, and the oldest saint, who's been a believer for 70 years, they both take the same bread, they both take the same juice, they both say, still, it's just this, this is all that endears me to God. That's what it means to abide in Christ. And so abiding really is resting from our labours, it's emptying our hands of any good things we could bring to God, and just getting out of the way and letting Christ do his thing in us. Letting Christ give life to us. 
All of that is fleshed out in John 15. So if you'll flip there now, John 15 sort of gets at what shape that continual belief takes. What does it look like in the life of a believer? I want to say um, abiding in Christ looks like knowing yourself fully loved by Christ and perfectly cleansed by Christ. Let's start with loved. So in verse 9, Jesus actually um, specifies a little bit. He goes from calling the disciples to abide in him to then in verse 9, calling them to abide in his love. Verse 9, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. Abide in my love. Jesus makes some remarkable statements about his love for us in this passage. One of them was in that verse, but it's, the language is so simple, it's really easy to pass over it. As the Father has loved me. You think back, for example, to Jesus' baptism, and the voice comes from heaven. This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. That delight, that fervent affection that the Father has for the Son Jesus says, I have that same affection toward you. Just as the Father has loved me, I love you. Later on, he's going to say the same thing of the Father toward us in chapter 17, verse 23, at the end of his prayer. He says, he wants us to be perfectly one. We heard more about that this morning. So that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. That the Father loves us exactly with that same affection, that same fervent, unconditional love that he has toward the Son. Now, all of us who are Christians in this room believe that, right? That's, in fact, that's sort of step one, right? Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And yet it is the wrestle of our lives, I think, to know that deep in our bones, And it's the knowing of that deep in our souls, deep in our affections, that actually transforms us. It's the most transformative thing in the world. In fact, uh, in Ephesians chapter 5, when the Apostle Paul is calling us to the highest calling Christians are given in the New Testament, he says, be imitators of God. How does he support it? He says, as beloved children. And then he says, walk in love as Christ loved you and gave himself up for you, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. That is, knowing the love of God for us. We are just loved sons of God, knowing the love of the Saviour for us. We were loved to the point of death, infallibly produces lives of love in us. It is a transformative thing when we know it deep in us, which is why, just a couple of chapters before that, Paul prays for these apparently very mature Christians in Ephesus that they would know the breadth, length, height and depth of the love of Christ. To know this love that surpasses knowledge. It's the most crucial prayer that there is because it is what makes us into his image. I remember just being floored by this a couple of years ago. I was memorising Romans 5. And the the beauty of uh, memorising scripture, it's been a while since I spruiked it so I've got to do it again. Memorising scripture versus reading is like walking through a, a landscape rather than flying overhead. So when, you, when you've read the scriptures, you know the shape of certain books and passages. You know it's in Romans 5, right? He, he loved us when we were still sinners and there's a comparison of, of Adam and Christ. 
but when you memorize it, you actually have to trip over every single verse in that thing. You actually start reckoning with every little sentence. And I remember hitting Romans 5.17, and I was lying on the floor in, in the house and just, just trying to get it into my head, where it says, now I'm going to test myself, uh, where it says, um, it's comparing Adam and Christ, and it says, uh, if by one man's trespass, by Adam's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. And for a while, I, I, I couldn't move on, not because I couldn't get it in my head, but because it was exploding my heart. Because you see what it says here, that not only is knowing the grace of God and really receiving it, knowing the free gift of righteousness and re really receiving it, not only is it good for me and my soul, it's actually essential for all the people around me. If I'm going to reign in life, like that psalm says, if I'm going to not be impacted by the environment around me, but actually have a positive impact on it, to reign in life, I need to receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness. I can't keep doing the false humility thing that says, I'm a rotten sinner and I just can't really accept the love of God. I struggle to accept the grace of God. Because actually, my soul is at stake and those around me as well. I actually need to make it my business to go, you know what, it says it, and I'm just going to get that deep in my heart. The free gift of righteousness, the abundance of grace. Now, um, he's going to go on then to say, so he says, abide in my love, back in John 15 now. He tells us how to abide in his love. Verse 10, he says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love, which can strike us as kind of um, legalistic, you know? Uh, he loves us freely, now work hard and you'll stay in. What we need to recognize is actually in verse 12, he tells us what his commandment is. He says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. You see, what he's saying is what we have just touched on, that to receive the love of God is such a transformative experience that it infallibly produces love in us. That is what Christ's commandments are. They are love for God and love for neighbor. And therefore, if we don't see in ourselves love for God and love for neighbor, we actually have no assurance at all that we are abiding in God's love because it is that transformative. You can infer from one to the other. But I think a, a, a significant impediment to us really embracing that um, love of God for us is our own sin that we're so acquainted with. That it's hard to know the love of God when you are so aware of your own hypocrisy and inconsistency, the sin that still dwells in you. Which is why we also need to know ourselves perfectly cleansed by Christ. Verse 1 of John 15. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. See, I think we talk a lot about what the pruning of God means here. And maybe we're slightly fearful of it, the discipline of God. But uh, if we don't put it in its right context, the pruning, the discipline of God... Yeah, it can be just that, can be a, a fearful thing. 
it can feel sometimes like a sort of impersonal karmic force. I've done the wrong thing over here, and now I get punished over here, and that sort of course corrects. Or it's, is, is it God sort of fixing me up to be the kind of person he can love? And we can go in and out of feelings of being right before God, that one day we go, I'm feeling pure and clean, I've sinned, now I feel a bit dirty again, God cleans me up again and I learn my hard lesson and now I'm back in and it's up and down and in and out. And I think what's crucial is that we don't pass over Jesus' glorious affirmation of us in verse 3. Already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. The paradox hits us more if we understand that that word clean is the exact same word as the word pruned here. Our translators have not helped us <laughs> at all. Um, literally, he says, uh, the father prunes those who are fruitful branches and you are already pruned because of the word I've spoken to you. We're helped to understand what that paradox is getting at when we uh, see where Jesus makes this pronouncement of cleanliness over his disciples. He says, you're clean because of the word I've spoken to you, which comes in chapter 13. You come back to John 13. And John 13 is, is such a vivid moment, isn't it? It's the Last Supper, and it's Jesus, without a word, taking off his outer garment, uh, taking some water, and washing each of the disciples' feet in turn. Uh, and you'll remember, he comes to Peter, and Peter, so characteristically human, says, Lord, you cannot wash my feet. This is beneath you. It's a bit like what we were saying then. You know, like, it's, it's this human instinct to say, I've got to clean up my own muck. You, you can't do it. You can't do it. And Jesus turns on him and says, unless you let me wash you, you actually have no part in me. Again, to, to abide in Christ, to be a branch in the vine, means letting the Saviour stoop down and wash you. There's no other way. You can't do it yourself. And so Peter, again, char characteristically Peter and Fickle says, well then don't just wash my feet. Wash my head and my hands too. I'm all in. And Jesus says something so curious. Verse 10, Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash, except for his feet, but is completely clean. And here is our pronouncement. And you are clean, but not every one of you. He's referring to Judas there, of course. So I think what we have here in John 13 and John 15 are two very vivid pictures of the same glorious reality. That firstly, we are perfectly cleansed simply because of a word Jesus has spoken over us. He has died for us on the cross. He's borne our sins. He's risen again. And then he pronounces us right here, clean. That's a status that's conferred on you that never changes. No matter what happens in life, that status hangs over your life. You are clean. But then we still need to have our feet washed from time to time. We're perfectly pruned, but then we still need to have a few odd twigs um, pruned off every so often. But that pruning now, it's not an impersonal karmic force. It's not, a, uh, it's not God making us lovable. When God prunes us, when God cleanses us, it's the very personal service, like a, like a gardener, like a, a saviour washing your feet, in which he simply brings your life into conformity with how he already sees you. He already sees you as clean. Now he says, now let's get your life looking clean. 
Now, uh, so that, that I think is what it means to abide in Christ. It means empty your hands, come to Christ for cleansing, let him wash you, and then know yourself washed. Know yourself every day loved by him. The tangible form I think abiding in Christ takes is pretty clear in the life of Jesus. He had a very fruitful ministry, of course, a busy ministry, people coming up to him all the time. Um, But he would often take time to retreat and pray. And he'd spend hours and hours in prayer, seeking the face of the Father. And so I'm very fond of um, a a quote from a a minister who talks about faith, and he says, faith is spelt R-I-S-K. I've always liked that. I have that in my back pocket. There's, there's no way to have faith without taking a risk. And I want to say abide is spelt T-I-M-E. There's no way to really experience this sort of love of Christ, to really uh, rest in it without actually taking significant amounts of time to just bathe in it, bathe in the scriptures, in prayer, seeking the Father. And then you come down, back down the mountain, if you like, to a fruitful life. So bearing fruit, bearing fruit, what does it mean? We're back in John 15 now, and we get some remarkably simple logic. Verse 4. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. Here's the logic. Jesus is a fruitful person. You look in his ministry, he, he bore fruit. That's all he did. And so if you're connected to Christ, you can't not. You can't not bear fruit. The logic is that simple. Now, I think there are some hints in this passage that he... Well, there are two things he seems to specifically have in mind. One is love for one another, which Mike spoke about last week. He comes back to that a couple of times. Another, I think, is evangelism, um, and we'll get to that a little bit later. But I think there's a reason he uses such a generic term like fruit and such a uh, vivid, organic picture of a vine and branches because fruit is, is really just um, the overflow of all you're receiving from him, which isn't limited to love for one another, although it gloriously includes it, isn't limited to making disciples, although it includes it. It is all that Christ is flowing through us. So I want to speak mainly about what that means in a general sense. I want to define fruit as as this, the good works and words that flow from a heart filled with the love of Christ. When you're abiding in the love of Christ, the overflow of it is the good works and words, the fruit. And um, I don't know if you guys, those of you who who preach here, um, offer this token prayer to the Lord on the day of a sermon, um, as I do. But I often say, look, if there's anything you want me to change, take out, bring in, I'll do it. And mercifully, he's never taken me up on it. But he did this morning, I think. So uh, I don't know if, I can't say take it up with God if it's wrong. You know, maybe I'm just hearing things. But um, what I want to do is do this part of the sermon as a case study of fruit bearing from the parable of the Good Samaritan. Okay, so let's, let's go there uh, to Luke chapter... 10. Luke chapter 10. What I recognize is I could, I could jump all over the scripture and make um, the points about fruit that, that God has been laying on my heart. And then actually, 
in my preparation, just this, this parable of the Good Samaritan rose higher and higher in terms of going, this isn't really ticking all the boxes. Um, so, uh, Luke chapter 10 and verse 25. Behold, a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. He said to him, You've answered correctly. Do this and you'll live. But the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I'll repay you when I come back. Which of these do you think proved to be a neighbor to the one who fell among the robbers? And he said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go, and do likewise. Three things about fruit. Firstly, fruit, bearing fruit for Christ, is more about... Firstly about, I should say, firstly about what we become before it is about what we do. What's so amazing about this passage is the man starts by asking, who is my neighbor? He wants Jesus to define for him who his neighbor is out here so he knows who he needs to love and who uh, he doesn't need to love. And do you see how Jesus rephrases the question in verse 36? Which of these do you think proved to be a neighbor to the one who fell among robbers. Jesus redefines a neighbor not as someone out here, but as what's going on in here. Neighborliness is a state of mind. It's something that actually flows out from you. And therefore, it's not about what's going on out there. It's just your own response. You see as well, he says um, in verse 33, the reason that he did what he did, the Samaritan, was because when he saw him, he had compassion. That came internally. That wasn't him acting on a law from the outside. You see, I think there's a legalist in all of us that when we hear a passage like John 15, if you don't bear fruit, you're taken away, that says, I better get busy bearing fruit then. And we overlook the fact that fruit is a promise and not a command in that passage. He doesn't say, go bear fruit. He says, abide in me and you will bear much fruit. The consistent witness of the New Testament is that God changes us from the inside out. It's the law written on the heart. It's the renewal of the mind. It's the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, that come from the inside and flow outwards so that we're not saying, who do I love and who don't I love? We, we just are love. And who we interact with, uh, that starts to come out. In fact, there's a great warning, isn't there, against simply doing things for Jesus without that heart. Those in Matthew 7 who come to him at the judgment and say, we cast out demons in your name. We perform miracles in your name. We prophesied in your name. And he said, that didn't prove anything. I never knew you. 
away from me. So fruit, firstly, is about who we become before it's about what we do. Secondly, we should think of fruit, bearing fruit, not in terms of the big opportunities, but in terms of the next opportunity. You see, if, if we're focusing on grand opportunities to perform good deeds for God, you know what can happen is that you're either thinking about the last opportunity you missed, you're going, that was a good opportunity for the gospel and I, I missed it. And it was two months ago, but you're still thinking about it. Or you're thinking about the next one coming up. Okay, maybe, you know, something's in the future. And in that process, you can actually miss a thousand, what we might call small opportunities every day that still bear fruit for God. That's what happens with the priest and Levite here, isn't it? Isn't it interesting that Jesus used those two? These guys are professional followers of God. And they've got important things to do for the Lord. Big things to do. So that when they come to the man on the street lying half dead, they can't trouble themselves with him because they're on their way to something more important. But the good Samaritan, no, he has eyes peeled, doesn't he? He's looking for um, an opportunity to actually express the neighborliness that is in his heart. We have opportunities every day. Ephesians 2 verse 10 tells us that we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So that my life is not about making opportunities for myself, but trusting day by day, God actually has things prepared. It's sort of, it might be trite to call it a game, but it's kind of fun, right? This idea of going tomorrow, Monday, he's got opportunities for Vicky, that he's gone, okay, here are, the, here are the things, here are the good works I want her to walk in. Opportunities for Jeff, opportunities for all of us. And we just got to see them, walk in them. Some of those opportunities to bear fruit, we know already. I'm a husband, I'm a father. I know that a good work that Christ is calling me to tomorrow is to lay down my life for my wife and love her. I know as a father that a good work he wants me to walk in is to be present with my children, to discipline my children well, to be patient with them as as the father is so patient with me. And we shouldn't despise those opportunities to bear fruit for God. That's what life consists of, right? They're, They're the odd big opportunity, but day in, day out, it's you with your family, it's you with those closest to you. And it's a sad thing, isn't it? The amazing evangelist out there who neglects his home the amazing miracle worker out there whose marriage is a shambles. In fact, you're not fit to do the work out there if you're not doing the work in those closest to you. That's what actually finds you out. Are you really a neighbour or do you just do the odd neighbourly thing? So there are known good deeds. There are also unknown ones, people that God might send your way. And Sean, that was great hearing those testimonies, you know, but those are all just unknown experiences. People coming up, that they couldn't have, they couldn't have um, scripted that. It was just God sending someone your way. And there are people around you every day that the Lord might want you to go up and pray for, might want you to encourage with a word, might want you to give something to. And if we're going to be neighbours like the Good Samaritan, what we need to do is have eyes peeled looking for those opportunities. And to be interruptible like he was, to not go, I'm on my way to such an important thing, I can't stop. But to have, and Jesus had this too, didn't he? Profound sense of interruptibility. You can stop me. I will talk to you. I will engage with you. And a willingness to bear the cost. See the good Samaritan there. So 
It's about what we become before it's about what we do. It's about the next opportunity, not the big opportunity. And finally then, if bearing fruit is about loving deeds, looking to meet the needs of others, it means that fruit is going to be impaired by focusing on ourselves. Self-focus is going to kill fruit bearing. In Matthew chapter 13, verse 22, Jesus is telling another parable, the parable of the sower. And the third soil is this. He says, as for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. It's always been curious to me that Jesus puts anxiety, worry, and greed, desire for riches, in the exact same category, at least in this case. He says both of them keep you from being fruitful. I think the reason for that is that both of them have you focusing on yourself. Whether you're thinking about all the worries that you have in life, all the things that you need to do, all the things you're struggling with, or you're thinking about all the things you want to get, in both cases you're thinking about you. And therefore you're not seeing the needs of the other. You know, this happens in marriage all the time. It's really clear how we should love one another in marriages. It's not a, it's not a complex thing, is it? If there are dishes to be done, what does love look like? You know? If your spouse uh, has something that's on their heart that they really need to speak to you about and take some time with, it's not hard to know what love looks like in that situation. You know, when you sit down for the night after putting the kids to bed and then one of them starts squawking, and you're both sitting on the couch and you look at each other, it's not hard to know what you should do, right? What, what is love calling you to do? But self-centeredness will cook you at every turn. If I'm thinking, if we're sitting on that couch and I'm thinking about my needs, I'm so tired, I've had such a long day at work, I'm going to be far more tempted to say, you go. If I'm sitting on the couch and... Um, and I, I'm thinking about how I did it last time and what I'm owed and I've kind of got the mental checklist in my mind and my, to be honest, my side is way up here and yours is down there. She thinks the opposite, it's inverted, you know. If I'm thinking about that, I'm far more likely to say you go and love is short-circuited. Love is an other focus. So if we're thinking about our own worries, thinking about our own cares, it won't happen. That kind of thing can happen tragically in you know, those unknown opportunities as well. I had a, a sad one just the other day. I was at a play centre with the kids and I um, uh, saw a lady a few tables away. She was about my age and she was crying sitting at the table. The call of love is very obvious. Go over, ask her how she's going, offer to pray for her. But then in a couple of seconds, and actually John mentioned something like this a couple of weeks ago, within a couple of seconds... I'm thinking of all the reasons why not in my mind, right? And they're all to do with me, I noticed. Well, and this is often honestly the case for me, she's about my age, she's going to think I'm cracking onto her or something, you know? She's going to think I'm taking advantage or maybe I'm going to go, I'm not going to know what to say or, you know, all of these things. And before I knew it, the opportunity was gone as I was wrestling through those thoughts. What we ought to do with those thoughts is not answer each one individually, Okay, well, she probably won't think that. I've got the wedding ring, I'll just show her, like the, you know, whatever. Not answer each of those individually, but discard the whole thing and say, that's all me. My call is to love. What does she need? Let's go do it. Let's go take the risk. All right. Um, evangelism is going to be covered in a few weeks. Um, and so I only want to say one thing about that, which is that as we live these lives, 
of ordinary fruitfulness, if you like. Ordinary, what Jesus calls salt and light kind of living. We will be prepared for the big opportunities when they come our way. That's a promise actually held out to us in Colossians chapter 4. Colossians chapter 4, Jesus, uh, Paul, Jesus through Paul, um, tells the Colossians a final parting word. He says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Did I give you the wrong passage? Uh, does it get down there? Yeah, yeah. So that, that bottom bit. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. That's what we're talking about, right? It's, it's living the life of Christ among non-believers. He says, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt. So each time I'm talking to someone, I've got to think not about what I need, but how can I minister grace to this person? And then here's the promise. He says, then you will know how you ought to answer each person. So that if I'm in the habit of constantly, every time I'm having a conversation, trying to minister grace to someone, when the ultimate opportunity to minister the ultimate grace, which is the gospel of Christ comes, it's going to be seamless. And I'm going to be not giving them a pitch that I've prepared, but I'm so used to thinking about them and not myself that I can tailor an appeal of love directly to that person. That's the sort of stuff we saw, I think, down uh, uh, in this Light Up Hobart Festival, a a well-practiced love for the person that issues in sharing the gospel of Christ. And my final point here, I've just written joy in all caps with an exclamation mark. Uh, Verse 11, Jesus says he tells us all of these things so that our joy will be complete. This is the funnest way to live. It's the most joyful way to live. It's how we're designed to live. Uh, So let's live it. Let me pray. Our Father, we do pray that you would fill us with the knowledge of your will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Lord, we pray that we would walk in a manner worthy of Christ and fully pleasing to him, that we would bear fruit in every good work and increase in the knowledge of God. Lord, we pray that you would strengthen us with your own power for all endurance and patience in this with joy as we give thanks to you. We thank you for this vocation. We thank you for uh, how thrilling it is to us and the promise that it glorifies you. And I just pray that as we go out of here, Lord, we would go out uh, enamored with your presence, that you'd keep us, Lord, honestly, from putting the cart before the horse, that we would not be legalists, but we would just dwell in your presence long, love your presence, and then find that as we walk through the valley of weeping, we make it a place of springs. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.